This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or just even seeking to improve themselves, but actually who seek to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much a destination where you arrive as a journey you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. And we thought it would be amazing to end the season actually with a conversation with the two people who have shared this journey most closely with me on the production side of this podcast. Our partner for content, Scott Kaufman, who's been executive producing, and then Mary Elizabeth Goodell, our community manager, who's been our producer for every episode, very involved ahead of time and in the midst of the recording with our guests. And Scott and Mary Elizabeth, uh, it's fun to get to sit down and actually reflect on what we've done together and learned together, along with some questions from people who have been listening along with us. So I'm so thrilled we get to talk. Yes. Here too. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. And so people finally hear your voice. Our guests have heard Mary Elizabeth's voice a lot. Uh, <laughs> Scott has heard our guest voice a lot because, Scott, you are have been the principal editor I thought that we'd start out actually partly so our listeners can get to know each of you a little bit by just asking about what it's been like to play the role you've played in this podcast. Mary Elizabeth, maybe we could start with you. Maybe talk a little bit about what you've done to mm-hmm. make these episodes happen and what you've learned or maybe what you've liked about it as you've done it. I remember I had just joined the team when Praxis had made the decision to start doing a podcast. Right. And Dave, our CEO, mentioned it in a staff meeting of, hey, we're going to do this thing. If anybody's interested, let me know. And I I sent him a message and I said, hey, I'd I'd really like to be involved. And he said, oh, thanks so much. Well, I think we want to work with somebody who has podcasting experience, but thanks. (laughs) Like, we'll keep you in the loop, which was his very gracious way of saying we wanted this to be professional. Um, and then I went and I learned how to podcast. I'd had a little bit of production experience previously. And then I started meeting with people and gathering all the equipment. And then as we were in that process, I became the community manager. That was not my first role at Praxis. <laughs> yeah. And so as I was stepping into community manager, it made sense from a different point of view because now I was actually meant to be learning and sharing the stories of our community. And this became a really natural way for me to hear the stories. And Andy, you have this beautiful way of talking about interviewing people, but it was something about you're stepping into the stories and you're living there and you're walking around and you're you're kind of taking on that person's experience as best <laughs> you're able to. <laughs> and so I started doing the pre-interviews yeah. for all of our guests and uh, and trying to dig out those stories and figure out what it was that we were going to want to highlight. I would sit in on every interview. I loved doing the pre-interviews because it was ways for me to practice becoming more like you, Andy, and your question asking. (laughs) So I would would do a pre-interview, sit in on your interview, get a little bit better at question asking, and then I'd get to practice again for the whole season. That's why season two of The Redemption Adventure will be hosted by Mary Elizabeth Goodell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it's finally dawned on you, Andy. Andy, this was our way of telling you. We've gathered you here. (laughs) I'm going to get a note from Dave Blanchard saying, well, we're actually looking for someone who has podcast experience for this next episode. (laughs) Mary Elizabeth is the one. (laughs) 
We want you to move into more of a mentoring role, player coach. (laughs) Nothing would make me happier. Scott, you're our partner for content, and people may or may not know that anything that comes out of Praxis that's sort of in, you know, in content form, whether it's our website or anything written, and, and also these podcasts, goes through you. And actually, I'm, I'm sort of interested in what, to you, has made this different or special, you know, compared to the many other things that we're doing, the Praxis course and our website and Praxis Journal. I don't know, what has been meaningful about being part of this particular piece of our content? I do that job in a lot of different ways at Praxis, and you might think that it would mostly be a writing job, mm. but actually the job of partner for content is more of an editing and coaching job mm-hmm. at Praxis because there are so many extraordinary voices in the community and so many extraordinary stories to tell, whether we're talking about Praxis itself or mostly when we're trying to help amplify the missions and the visions and the stories of people in our community. And so I do that by coaching our fellows as they develop their pitches. I help them write their essays when they want to talk about what they do in writing. What was new here is that podcasting was a medium that I was a fan of, but was not a practitioner of. Mm. And in fact, I, the opposite of Mary Elizabeth, I actually came to each one of these intentionally not listening on to the original interview so that I could come to someone who didn't have anything invested in the conversation. Wow. Yeah. And so You know, I just try to listen like a fan and edit Uh, like a fan. So it's interesting to think about the people we've interviewed. And I thought we could talk for a minute about how we chose these folks and why. I get emails and comments from people fairly often saying, hey, have you considered interviewing so-and-so? I've gotten a lot of really great suggestions about people who are doing amazing things in the world. Let's talk a little bit about that process. Mary Elizabeth, uh, we were all part of it, but you were certainly uh, part of it. Maybe you can give a little description of what we were looking for as we selected the guests this season. Yeah, it was exciting, mostly because we started with people who were in our community, meaning that they were either fellows and had gone through our accelerator, or they were mentors or supporters of some sort, or or somehow had stake in our community, and by extension, stake in the redemptive entrepreneurship conversation, and had spent some time thinking about it and applying it to their work. I remember we had a long conversation about, do we want them to be in the middle of their career, Mm. towards the end of their career? Do they need to have some space from the intense highs and lows of their entrepreneurial journey in order to be able to reflect on it? So there is a conversation around what stage entrepreneur is the right fit. And then are they going to be able to articulate their thoughts well, nonprofit leaders, for-profit leaders, people working on different types of products? And then looking for diversity as well, so that we would have different perspective represented on the season. Scott, what would you add to that? The description might lead you to think that we decided there were only eight people we could talk to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then as we were wrapping up this first season, we went to make our wish list for the next season. Yeah. And you know, that list might be 30 people. Yeah. yeah. We had the sense that we could all quit our day jobs and make podcasts <laughs> and not run out of great folks to talk to for a long time. Uh, uh, one, uh, wonderful comment we got from a listener said, these are the kinds of people I want to know. And I've certainly felt that way. Mm -hmm. I feel incredibly honored to know these folks. As I talked to them, I think what I felt each time was just a sense of honor to learn from this particular human being, the way that they Mm -hmm. had lived faithfully, not without ups and downs, but, you know, through everything they've been through. And they've all been through really interesting things in Mm -hmm. pursuing their calling and their life. 
And we were talking a little bit before we got going here about whether these are heroes or not. I don't know. When when we think about the range of people, I mean, you know, Sarah Miller and Derwin Sisnat or Jeff Huber, Terry Luber, what is it that makes their lives worthy of emulation? As we reflect on what we've heard, what makes these people, whether they're heroes or not, what makes them worth attending to? As I thought through with my editor's brain of the key themes or the patterns that we've seen over the course of the season, I think the one that strikes me the most is the way they think about trial or suffering. I think there's a narrative. It's a very American narrative, and it's amplified, especially in the entrepreneurial world, that you know, challenges, trials are you know, obstacles to conquer, <laughs> that they're learning opportunities, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that the sort of ways to become more amplified in who you are and ways to set yourself apart. And one of the things that every one of these people proves is that that narrative is of little interest to them mm -hmm. and that they uh -huh. see suffering as so essential to forming their character, to enabling them to surrender to God's leading huh. in their life to give them greater empathy so that they can be greater servants in the work that they do. I think they just have lived out and seen and conceived of suffering in a very counter cultural mm -hmm. way. Wow. Mm -hmm. Not that any of them would necessarily be able to say that mm -hmm. or express it like that, but yeah. I see that in each one of their stories. That is amazing because you have absolutely nailed why I wasn't quite sure hero was the right word. Because right. I actually think right. hero in that kind of Nietzschean way, going back to the Greek you know, heroes that, that Nietzsche was very fond of, is exactly the idea of I'm overcoming it all. Like I'm just plowing through the yeah. obstacles. Like, yes, pain may come, but I'm going to be victorious over it. And that's exactly not the kind of attitude of these folks, even though they are overcomers in all kinds of ways. That's exactly the reason that hero is not the word we need for them and yeah. that they would probably shy away from, even though we admire them, you know, and, and they're worthy of admiration and emulation. In, in every case, they were all stepping closer to suffering. Mm -hmm. yeah. It wasn't, I had this yeah. experience with suffering and, and now I've walked away from it or it's in my past, but they were either stepping closer to suffering of their own mm -hmm. or to the suffering in others mm -hmm. and drawing closer to it and really sorting through what it means to agree to that for the indefinite future. I also would have to say, Andy, that you've trained me to see that because I think that winds up probably being the most common theme of your outros. Yeah. So when you pull it all together for 30 seconds and you land the story, I think almost invariably you talk about weakness or suffering or pain huh. and you're not making it up out of nowhere. You're illuminating the way that they have dealt with these things huh. as being signal thing about them. You know, this actually leads to another very specific comment we got that is very related. So I, I wrote a book called Strong and Weak, which I just keep developing the ideas in it. As you guys know, like I give the the sort of core strong week talk to almost every group of fellows who come into Praxis using this two by two of authority right. and vulnerability. But it really is, of course, about this idea that vulnerability is an essential component of flourishing. It's not the only thing. There's also authority, but that authority is very dangerous when it's mm -hmm. without vulnerability, as actually vulnerability is very dangerous and damaging when it, it is separated from the the right kind of authority. So one comment we got in the comments on the podcast was someone said that actually they read Strong and Weak, and I want to read what they wrote because it's really quite striking. 
starting with the book Strong and Weak, God has been stirring something in me to join him in restoring flourishing to the world, which is just, honestly, I can't imagine a more wonderful thing to read about something that I wrote that Mm. served that purpose. But then they write, Mm. but I have no clue how to begin. My business Mm -hmm. experience, I'm still quoting, they say, calls me to put together a plan, a framework with a value proposition, a business and funding model. And I think that's a part, but I'm curious, is there a framework or lens I should be considering? So ending the quote, I think they're really asking, in a way, I hope this podcast would have kind of the same effect as my book did on this particular person, like that as we hear these stories, we start to think, oh, I would like to live like that. I would like to have that level of Mm -hmm. effect with that kind of quality, that non-heroic, but very admirable quality. And so this question of where do you start and how does Praxis kind of think about where we go if we want to be restoring flourishing with God in this distinctive way? And I couldn't help think about a bunch of things, but one thing is, Scott, something you've really developed, which is this redemptive frame that we also teach every group of fellows about. And I just wonder how you would answer that listener's question. Yes, one of the things when we talk with anyone in our programs, we always start with the strategy. And by that, we just mean, what is this organization trying to do to the world? Mm. And I think there's a myth that only nonprofits and social enterprises have to ask that question. (laughs) Yes. What are we trying to do to the world? And I think a lot of business leaders have been trained that the answer to that question for them is whatever people will buy. Mm. And even if it's a pure business that runs purely on a profit motive, we want to start working with people in their imagination for what's broken or what needs to be fixed or what the problem is in the world and to push them again and again to try to answer that question in a deeper level than market forces might lead them to think about it. Mm -hmm. If an entrepreneur's answer to what's wrong with the world is this thing is inefficient or this thing is irritating (laughs) or people ought to pay more for this thing, all those things may be true and those may be the basis for a lot of products and services. But to us, I would say that's just not imaginative enough. Mm -hmm. And so we would want people to take a more loving and lamenting look at the world and say, what's broken? In who is the image of God not being properly honored and realized? And how can we build something that can actually address that at scale? That was an amazing phrase, a loving, lamenting look at the world. It's so right. And yet, I mean, What I love about Praxis is there is this kind of honesty about the world, and that's certainly been true with the people we interviewed, like this kind of willingness to look directly at what's Mm -hmm. missing and wrong, but without a sense of being kind of paralyzed by lament, without despair, without even getting mired in it exactly, but as a spur to creativity and action. And that's just what all of our guests have. It's what the whole community is kind of infused by. But it's also not action without love and lament. You know, it's not just kind of find the opportunity and go for it. It's find the opportunity, spend the time to love, spend the time to really recognize what's broken or missing in the context of creating. Well, and I think, too, instead of looking for opportunities, looking for invitations, right? Because with each of the fellows that we interviewed for this podcast or the founders, it was that they saw something and, and they felt an invitation mm. and they pursued it. So often, and you can't, you know, you can't always rely on, we'll sit back and something will show up. Yep. But there is an element of being patient enough that if you do step back and look at the reality of the world, and not just of the world, but your sphere, right? Like the things that you are proximate to, 
and looking for ways that you could step into those places. Yeah. Sometimes calling can lead you very far from where you are, but it starts with where you are. And it actually yeah. starts with where you come from as well. Like what's the story you've inherited and in a way only yeah. you can be responsible to. So where do you come from? Yeah. Where are you? Is always the beginning of calling. Even if you end up, you know, I mean, Moses, where did he start in Pharaoh's house? What's before that? He's a Hebrew. Where is he now in the desert? Why is he there? <laughs> you know, like his calling originates in this very specific place and history. And then, it, of course, mm-hmm. the calling is to lead the people out of Egypt. It's not just to stay put by any means, but it, it begins with there. Mm-hmm. And one other thought I had as I, as I read this question in particular, where uh, absolutely one of the great values of business as the way we've come to practice it in the kind of Western world is this very clear emphasis on planning, strategy, having value proposition, all that stuff. And we certainly believe in that and work really hard with mm-hmm. all of our entrepreneurs on that. But there's one group we work with that's especially analogous to someone who's asking, where do I begin? I'm not sure where to begin. And, and that's actually our venture lab where we work with people who don't have an up and running business. <laughs> And one of the beautiful kind of frameworks that has come out of that for us is this idea of learning, discerning, and designing, which is not meant to be three totally separate stages, but they do have a sequence to them. And so we encourage the entrepreneurs and residents who join our venture lab. They often have a hunch. They have some kind of topic that they're interested in, but they usually don't. They're nowhere close to having a deck. <laughs> you know, the, they don't have a business plan yet. And rather than jump right to the deck, we say, let's start by learning. Let's start by going much deeper back into history, back into adjacent disciplines, whether it's philosophy and theology or sociology or you know whatever is appropriate for a given topic. And so then after you've done this kind of deep learning, then going into actually a process of discerning where you pick up the tools mm-hmm. that come from the traditions of spiritual direction and spiritual formation, and you allow time for God to actually be speaking to your own situation and your heart and life. And then we move, this is over the course of a year, basically, with them to this designing phase, which is all about ending up with a really clear business plan, a really clear product, market, all that stuff. But that's the last stage of having immersed yourself in a particular topic or a particular passion that you feel. Mm -hmm. You have to, in order to pursue your calling, you have to think about where you've come from. So for the learning phase of the Venture Lab, we have people look at, well, where did this issue start? Why are we in the situation we're in now? What needs fixing and how did we get here? Yeah, yeah. I think one great example of that, if I may, is our first entrepreneur in residence, Jessica Kim. In her case, it may have been discerning first Hmm. because she was the main caregiver for her mother who had a terminal disease and she walked with her mom for quite some time. And that experience had a profound impact on her as it does with everyone who walks through that. And she felt that in discerning where God had put her, she needed to obey where God had put her. She wasn't trying to exploit where he'd put her. Mm-hmm. She was actually trying to be to honor mm-hmm. the experience that he had mm-hmm. led her and her family to have. Mm-hmm. But then rather than saying, okay, here are all the felt needs that I experienced when I was a caregiver, which would yeah. be the normal move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is good. For her, it was no, actually go back all the way back, go four steps back into, you know, what did the monastic fathers say about end of life? Mm-hmm. And what are both the cultural and sociological narratives and histories and wh- how have people thought about this and, and how does our culture in the West in particular, how does it deal with death and caregiving in ways that 
may have progressed from earlier times and in ways that may have regressed from mm -hmm. earlier times. Mm -hmm. So she was willing to do that deep learning. And I think mm -hmm. as a result, she probably came out with a different design mm -hmm. than she could possibly have if she hadn't taken several steps back mm -hmm. and tried to learn the narrative and the history and the theology at a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. Such a great example. We'll come back to Jessica in a moment as we wrap up this conversation because there's some very fun things we're going to get to do with her. But one more thing uh, that has come up in different conversations about this podcast, and I guess I'd put it this way, we hope that a lot of the folks who listen to it, and we, we know a lot of the folks who listen to it, do see themselves as entrepreneurs. They are in the midst of starting things. They plan to start something. But this is definitely not just for people who are going to be kind of startup founders. And most work is not startup work. And even startup work is not startup work for, mm -hmm. for very long, in a way. <laughs> you know, it moves on to other phases. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you want other people to come along yeah. who have other kinds of gifts. And I just thought we could end by reflecting, like, what is there in the stories we heard, which are all from people who did start things, that kind of mm -hmm. frame what it is to be redemptive for all of us, no matter uh, what role we may be mm -hmm. in right now or, or what our own temperament or interests are. So... You know, how does this apply to everything we do, not just the uh, specific entrepreneurship things that some of us might do? Any thoughts about that? Yeah. Sarah Miller's story, <laughs> which was the first interview we did, has stuck with me because it is not necessarily the venture formation that was the most impressive to me. <laughs> it was the fact that she went and moved and lived, and that was all she did <laughs> for a few years. And so I am most inspired by Sarah's story, not necessarily from her entrepreneurial grit, which is certainly <laughs> worth noting, but the way that she embodies community separate from a house on Beekman. That's mm. like an expression of, of what that's looked like from her. But she was doing that before there was a venture attached mm. to it. That is a reflection of the Lord's work in her life and her obedience to hit the still small voice of the Lord telling her to go and to love and to listen and to learn mm. from that community. And so Sarah is one example, but there's threads of that in the other entrepreneurs yep. we've worked with where what is so striking about the venture they're doing is something that the Lord taught them. Mm. My pre-interview with Terry Looper, I was in the middle of actually making a big personal decision and I felt like it was a particularly loving thing for the Lord to do to give me 20 wow. minutes of time yes. with Terry Looper. <laughs> To, to talk about discernment. It's interesting you mentioned, Terry, because when I think of maybe an example that applies to all of us, I did think about the turning point in his life, which was, you know, this breakdown that he describes, wasn't right. it the day before he was to be or consecrated or whatever the term is, as his an church, elder. as an elder? Installed as an elder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, this, and not being able to move out of bed and and how he responded to that. Like, you know, it goes back to this heroic idea. Like, the heroic thing to do would be to like somehow masterfully overcome it and sort of hmm. jump out of bed in spite of your other depression. And maybe yeah. he truly felt he couldn't even move. And, and in a way, he was saved from his own heroism, possibly, by just how debilitating the sudden kind of breakdown of mental and emotional and physical energy was. But the incredible intentionality with which he responded to that, rather mm -hmm. than minimizing it, almost maximizing it, and being like, okay, I have got to learn how to be healthy. Everything mm -hmm. is going to have to change. Anything that needs to be put on hold will be put on hold until I become healthy. And mm -hmm. that just feels so central for so many of us who get by <laughs> with 
we know that things aren't great, and we know that we could be way more effective in what we're doing, but we're willing to get by rather than really go to the heart of whatever's happening. So mm-hmm. I think that's so applicable across so many different kinds of circumstances of life. Scott, any last thoughts on kind of how this applies to all of us who are working and living in the world? One of the reasons we work with entrepreneurs is because they have so much control. Uh, They get to decide everything Mm -hmm. in a way that none of the rest of us get to decide everything, but Mm -hmm. everything is actually a design option Mm -hmm. for an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Going back to my thing earlier where I was talking about suffering and failure and strength. If you look at podcasts or interviews with entrepreneurs or CEOs and they're talking about themselves, essentially they're describing how they have decided how they are going to manufacture their life in order to be more effective. Mm -hmm. And the lie about all of that is that they actually are in control Mm -hmm. or that they actually get to decide what kind of person they become through their will. Mm -hmm. And I think what's true of all these people is there's a truth that says, yes, I have agency. I have responsibility. I have to make decisions. But in the end, what's really happening here and one, another one of our entrepreneurs in residence, Chris Sai, says, God is making me as I'm making the world, mm. is the fact that actually God is forming me. He's acting on mm-hmm. me. He's shaping me. He's making something out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my job is actually to be obedient, to be a recipient, and to be a steward of what he's making me. Mm-hmm. One other thing that comes to mind is that it was striking to me how many of the interviews you did this season seemed to get to family. Yeah. It struck me, especially in Pete Oaks and Terry Looper, because they're in the last couple of acts of their vocational lives. Mm -hmm. And when you ask them about success, they each gave a long list of definitions of success culminating in their hard-fought restoration of their relationships with their families. Mm -hmm. The consummation of their professional life was, I have a family again. Mm -hmm. But you also saw that in others. I'm thinking particularly of Mm -hmm. Ben and Laura Harrison Mm -hmm. and Britt Gilmore. Mm-hmm. who, in different ways, their family of origin mm. and their family now, they see as co-creators and participants and major actors in the story of their entrepreneurial work. Mm-hmm. And that is very profound to mm-hmm. me. What about you, Andy? I mean, it, how has that thread affected <laughs> you? Am I allowed to ask you a question? <laughs> I will ask the questions here, Scott. <laughs> I think it's only fair. What you just said has moved me very much as well. And I mean, partly because I'm on my own journey of doing this well. And in some ways, inc- mm-hmm. you know, incredibly grateful for my own family of origin and the family that I formed with my wife, but still learning how to live that fully integrated life. <laughs> there is just something very striking about people who are able to live in a way that does full like justice to to their histories, which above all includes family history, and where their lives aren't just a bunch of pieces, <laughs> you know, that happen to all yeah. be there. That over time, there's this discovery, oh, I never had a bunch of different vocations. I had a call, and it was to be me in the world with these different roles mm-hmm at different seasons, but in this consistent way. And Mm -hmm. I don't always feel Mm -hmm. like I get there in my own life. And my family could tell you about times when I definitely have have missed that. It is very hard to exist in our contemporary world and not subtly pick up the message that great impact and success comes at the expense of 
the more intimate relationships in your life, whether that's your church community or your whatever family you may be have come from. But it does feel like one of the witnesses that we actually see pretty consistently in our community is the people we most want as mentors live one life. <laughs> and everyone who knows them mm. in whatever part of their life, and people know them deeply from many different angles, and yet they all know that one person. That's a pretty important thing for all of us, no matter whether we're entrepreneurs or not, to like make a goal of our lives. Could I live one life? You know, Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. <laughs> so we've gotten to talk with some, mm. some people with some purity of heart, at least on the way to purity of heart. As we've been doing our work on The Redemptive Edge, we'll wrap this up just briefly with this. It's kind of semi a promo for the next thing. Secretly, another podcast, a rival podcast within the Praxis Podcast Empire has been developed. And I thought we should talk about it for a minute. Mm. I have not heard a minute of it. Really? No, but we should talk about None of the audio diaries or anything? I haven't heard a thing. But uh, you guys know what's going on, uh, and I know that it's happening. It's uh, So let's talk about the next podcast from Praxis. Yes. So the next podcast from Praxis will actually follow the startup story, or the most recent startup story, I should say, of Jessica Kim. When she was in the Venture Lab, she started the process. And so we actually began recording literally from day one. We have a recording of her sitting at a picnic table. She was mentoring for another event for us. And it's her and Dave talking about this pull she felt to start Ionicare. She has diligently recorded hours and hours and hours of conversation <laughs> since of pitch meetings and finding a co-founder. And they had like a really yeah, impressive yeah. first round that she raised in a matter of weeks. And she recorded as many of those meetings as she was able to. So Philip Lorish, who is our director of cultural research here at Praxis, and has in so many ways shaped the Venture Lab, uh, particularly as it relates to all of the learning that they do. He has compiled all of that from Jessica and is putting together a podcast that really traces her walk through the learning, discerning, and designing, and what it actually looked like for her to go from thinking about starting this organization all the way through the launch. So cool. It's also because they walked together so mm -hmm. closely mm -hmm. through this process when she was thinking about what she wanted to do, and he was helping to guide her reading and her reflection. It's not just an interviewer, interviewee dynamic. It's they're close friends. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, mutual appreciation between them, which comes out. So this is the next podcast. It's called Venture and it'll be out. Do we have a release date for it? It'll be out this summer. We're hoping that it will be out in August of 2019. Well, thank you guys. This is bittersweet into the first season of our work on the Redemptive Edge. And it has been quite a joy to do it and really fun to share your voices and who you are. Uh, I got to talk with you all the time, and it's it's <laughs> one of the great, great joys of my life to work with you and to have worked with you on this particular project. So thanks. Uh, really fun to talk. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Well, since I'm editing this episode, I won't be showing up in the audio, but you and Mary Elizabeth have a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make that joke that you guys were going to cut out all of my, <laughs> all of my comments. <laughs> This is The Redemptive Edge. You've been listening to the three of us, Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who's been producing all of our episodes, our community manager of Praxis, Scott Coffin, our partner for content, who's been executive producer for the whole series. If you want to know more about what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org. 
practicelabs.org, all in word. And it's not too late to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Even as we come to the end, it's obviously going to stick around. We'd love for more people to discover it and to discover future podcasts from Praxis. So thanks for all of you who have listened and commented and encouraged us uh, along this journey. We are super grateful to Mark Owens and Narrativo, who have done a ton of work on editing and production for us and with us. So thanks to them. Thanks to you. Thanks to all of our guests this season. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Thank you.